Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. Humans of Minnesota. Humans of the Twin Cities. Humans of all humans. How are you? Good Monday morning. The first Monday in February of 2020. Hooray. We're making our way through what I call the five bad boys. The five bad boys go from November through March. That's the bad boys as far as I'm concerned. And once we get past them, then we get to go to warmth and, well, sort of warmth anyway. Anyway, hello, this is Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio, here to talk with you about idealism and idealists and trying to change the world and trying to do our best. Okay? This is where I highlight people who are idealistic as well. Um, we've got a great show. Uh, the big interview is with Greta Call. Greta Call. She is a journalist with MinPost who has been covering uh, the decision of the Beltrami County Board of Supervisors to bar refugees from relocating in that county, even though, frankly, there had been a refugee in Beltrami County at least five years. And, of course, you'll hear my C block uh, where I'll talk about my work as a practical idealist. I'm going to talk with you about me speaking at churches. Hmm. But first, let me begin with our featured idealistic, uh, idealist of the week. Um, and, uh, but I need to preface all that by saying that not every idealist is entirely likable or popular. Um, heck, um, I have a doozy of an idealist uh, coming up for you in future weeks. Uh, you'll be like, Ellie, really? But um, it doesn't mean that their idealism isn't critical. It doesn't mean that they're not changing the world. It doesn't mean that they're not making um, all of us better for their work. So this, this week, I'm featuring an idealist who is just one of those um, perhaps not likable to some people person. Her name is Ingrid Newkirk. Uh, she's the controversial co-founder of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA. Okay, now some of you are like well familiar with PETA. Others of you are like, what is that? Uh, isn't that a pet store? Um, so sorry. Um, uh, I, you know, I'm sure uh, that many of you are familiar with PETA, but probably do not know the name Ingrid. Newkirk, who is one of the co-founders. And I really didn't know about Ingrid Newkirk until um, seeing her on an episode of Real Time with Bill Maher. And in fact, uh, Bill Maher uh, called uh, Ingrid Newkirk um, a hero, one of his heroes. That's got to be about the highest compliment you can get paid because Bill Maher is pretty grudging about the way he admires people. And of course, say what you will about Bill Maher. Perhaps I should highlight him sometime as an idealist. Hmm, think about that, Ellie. All right, here's the story on Ingrid Newkirk, briefly. She was born in England, and because of her father's job, spent much of her childhood in New Delhi. She is um, presently 70 years old. So her father had a job that took him from New England, excuse me, from England, not New England, from England to, uh, to India, where um, Ingrid Newkirk um, entered a boarding school eventually in the Himalayas. Two important things happened in Newkirk's life in India. First, her mother volunteered for Mother Teresa at a leper colony. Newkirk frequently helped her mother in that work and saw firsthand how people who are other were treated. She learned from her mother's work um, in the leper colony uh, that anyone in need was worthy of concern. The second incident that happened to Newkirk in India involved her seeing a group of people torture a dog. Um, Newkirk rescued the dog only for it to die 
in her arms. So that kind of set the stage a little bit for her. In, the ninth, in 1970, after marrying, Newkirk moved to Poolsville, Poolsville, I like Ellie, you can't even pronounce today, uh, Maryland. It's a far suburb of D.C. She was studying to be a, bro- a stockbroker when she came across a group of abandoned kittens, which she took to a local animal shelter. She later found out that the kittens were euthanized um, by that shelter. That was not what Newkirk intended for to happen to those kittens. And that outraged Newkirk, so much so that she subsequently got a job at that very shelter where she had taken the kittens, where she then later on went to document countless animal abuses at that shelter in Maryland. She later went public um, with information about those abuses at that shelter. A series of events led to Newkirk, um, who had no real education in animal management or control, to become Washington, D.C.'s first female pound master. Okay? Um, as an idealist must do, um, she used her imagination to then persuade the city of Washington, D.C. to set up a pet adoption program um, and um, an investigations department for animal cruelty and a pet sterilization sterilization program. I mean, so <clears throat> Newkirk gets this role. It wasn't one that she had intended to take. She takes up um, believing in the value of animals and the need to protect them, and then she starts using her imagination, as idealists do, on how to tackle a number of different problems. In 1980... Newkirk met a man named Alex Pacheco, who introduced Newkirk to the idea of animal rights. Um, At the time, 1980, the concept of animal rights um, as a movement was alive in England, and it was based on the idea that all living things have basic rights. Newkirk and Pacheco, who later on became lovers, that's just an aside there, along with a handful of other people, decided to form a group to educate people about animal rights. The bellwether event for PETA, what would become PETA, um, was uh, something that happened in 1981 when Pacheco, now remember, co-founder of um, PETA, volunteered at a place called the Institute of Behavioral Research in Silver Spring, Maryland. The Institute of Behavioral Research was a place where um, researchers used animals, mainly uh, macaw monkeys, to perform a series of experiments. Um, uh, And when Pacheco volunteered at the Institute of Behavioral Research, um, he saw that uh, they were working with 17 macaw monkeys, and um, they were essentially abusing them. Uh, The there were experiments that they were trying to conduct on uh, nerve migration and nerve generation. And uh, the animals' nerves of the monkeys, nerves to their arms and legs had been cut so the monkeys couldn't use their arms and legs. And then the monkeys were placed in physical restraints for nerve-ending experiments to see whether or not um, electric shock and other and other forms of... Um, of uh, promotion uh, could cause the animals to move their legs or their arms. It sounded pretty horrible. And Pacheco ended up taking some pictures of these monkeys in these restraints. It looked actually very horrible. 
And so later, Newkirk and Pacheco then told the police about what was going on at this research facility, which led to the police raiding the facility and the lead researcher uh, being charged with animal cruelty. Later on, the lead researcher was ultimately um, cleared of those charges. And I'd I can't get into the details about that, but when all of this came down with the police raiding the facility, the Washington Post ran a story about the raid and about Newkirk and Pacheco and their organization. It ran on page one with a photo of one of the monkeys in restraints. It went worldwide. So that was prior to social media. Uh, They were able, Newkirk and Pacheco were able to achieve worldwide, worldwide attention to their group. Um, through this uh, police raid on the Behavioral Institute. Uh, They put PETA on the map. Um, It also kind of set the stage for Newkirk to decide that anything that she could do to get publicity would be something that would be valuable to PETA. So um, also, as a result of their work, uh, changed federal law. Um, It changed federal law to better protect uh, animals. So, I mean, it was not something that was just in a vacuum. Uh, So in turn, uh, Ingrid Newkirk became kind of a media hound who has said that she'd do anything to protect animals. For example, in 2003, she wrote to then-Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat to protest his use of a donkey as a suicide bomber. Yeah, she did that. She published the letter to him. Uh, She's also, Newkirk has also supported the Animal Liberation Front, which has engaged in various acts of property damage and destruction, such as burning down animal research facilities or releasing animals like minks um, into the wild. That is before the minks could be made into mink coats. Uh, Newkirk has said she doesn't condone the methods of the Animal Liberation Front, but certainly supports their philosophy and their ends. Um, If you want to learn more about Ingrid Newkirk, you can pick up uh, her books. She's got one book um, titled Making Kind Choices, um, and then a second book titled Animal Kind. Or you could view a video about her life. Um, The video is titled I Am an Animal, the story of Ingrid Newkirk and PETA. Finally, just a connection from left field. Think about how humans have impacted defenseless animals repeatedly in this world. So think about the Australia um, fires that have killed, some estimates are, 500 million animals. 500 million. We all are interrelated. That is really what the animal rights movement is about. We are. And um, there's a whole lot more that we do not understand about the animal world, about how they interact with each other, and with us. So, Ingrid Newkirk, idealist. Read up about her. When we come back from our break, that takes care of that segment. When we come back from our break, I'm going to uh, speak with Greta Cole from MinPost. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. We'll be back. Thanks. Branding electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. 
Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Better Futures Minnesota is a social enterprise which helps men achieve self-sufficiency and a better future for themselves and their communities. We need your help. By donating time or funds to our cause, you can support us and promote a healthier environment. By hiring our deconstruction crews for your next residential or commercial project and shopping or donating building materials or appliances to our reuse retail warehouse, you are supporting Better Futures Minnesota and your community. Please visit BetterFuturesMinnesota.com to learn more. And we're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. Uh, yes, go read up on Ingrid Newkirk and PETA. Um, it's an interesting story, I'll tell you that, but I've got to give her and her colleagues a lot of credit for getting PETA to be such an incredibly um, a well-known name. All right, well, listen, uh, This is uh, we're now um, time to talk about... Um, uh, idealism, and I usually do the big interview with an idealist. Uh, today, I don't necessarily have an idealist, but I have somebody who can help us understand the needs uh, for idealism. I have Greta uh, Cole on the phone. She is MinPost data reporter. She's got a bachelor's degree in journalism um, and political science from the University of Minnesota, and she's had some stints in San Francisco and San Antonio as a reporter um, and as a Hearst Fellow. Uh, Greta, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm just doing really great. Doing really great. And I really appreciate you being on the show. Greta, you Thanks got... Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You got on my uh, radar uh, because you've been uh, reporting on uh, uh, what what's going on in Beltrami County or more likely what's not gone on. And... Um, and uh, I have a special interest uh, in, uh, in Beltrami County for a couple of reasons. One of those reasons being that um, uh, I'm doing, trying to do more work in greater Minnesota, I, which you may have some inkling about is that I go and train on human inclusivity across North America. But I've been trying to focus on greater Minnesota, the greater Midwest, because there are a lot of needs out there. So I, I had great interest about Beltrami County. And just to, uh, to lay the foundation, Greta, why don't you tell us what, what has happened up in Beltrami County as it relates to refugees? And then I'll, I've got some other questions for you. Yeah, so Beltrami County has made the news um, in, in basically this month uh, for being the first county in Minnesota to vote no um, on a question about whether or not to allow refugees to settle there when they first come to the state. Um, this vote, you, your listeners might have heard uh, about other counties voting too. Um, these votes were prompted by uh, an executive order from the Trump administration that uh, came out in, I believe, September um, that sought to give an unprecedented level of control um, in the refugee resettlement uh, process to local governments, meaning states and counties. So it would require um, both states and counties to consent to have refugees placed in a county, basically. Right. And, and if I understand correctly about the executive order, it requires you to, to take affirmative action if you want refugees, if you're willing to allow refugees um, 
to, to settle in your jurisdiction. And that if you do nothing, for example, you just kind of let the calendar go by and you don't take any vote, you don't, you don't consider this in some affirmative way, then that's considered a no vote. Do I have that right? Yeah, so the way the executive order worked um, is that there was a June 1st deadline before it goes into effect. Now, the reason we've been having a lot of these votes um, in January and December was because uh, agencies that resettle refugees were working with a January 21st deadline to uh, apply for funding from the federal government to um, work with refugees. So they were asking counties to um, give them consent earlier than the June 1st deadline. And yes, if counties didn't um, vote affirmatively um, or decide, if yeah, if you if you didn't vote one way or another at all, um, it would it would essentially be a no vote because you have to opt in as a county. Right. And I mean, and I know that you don't uh, want to uh, talk about political considerations, but I'm just going to make an observation. You know, it seems darn convenient that if um, if you don't if you don't take this on, in, in other words, it's requiring states or local jurisdictions to take the issue on and put it in front of people, that if you don't take the issue on, then uh, you're going to be counted as if you don't want refugees. And I, there is just, I, I know you're not going to comment on that, but I'm just going to say, I think that there's just something incredibly wrong about that, frankly. And, um, uh, you know, and I think that it feeds into some things, but we don't need to get into that. Um, well, yeah, I want to make it clear that I'm a news reporter. Yep. I work for a nonpartisan news organization, and um, I Ab- just report what happened. Um, Absolutely. But Thank hearing you. People say that. And another thing that uh, that is interesting about this executive order as it pertains to Minnesota is that if you look at the numbers over time, um, only 43 of Minnesota's 87 counties have had any refugees resettle um, within their bounds um, when they first came to the U.S. in the last 10 years. Right. Um, and you're seeing, I think, uh, 90% or more of, of those refugees that came in the last uh, 10 years came to uh, five counties. So it's, it's we're dealing really with a small number of counties that have actually had refugees come and primarily settle in their county. Also interesting is... Uh, when when people come here, they are primarily settled in a county, which means uh, the State Department and a nonprofit that resettles refugees work together to bring them to that county. But it, as soon as they land on U.S. soil, people with refugee status are allowed to move anywhere they want. Right. So, but I, I think it's more about calling upon jurisdictions to do this symbolic thing that is, I mean, just from me as a standpoint, as an idealist, it just irks the heck out of me. But um, the good news is, and, and some of what you and I are talking about at this point is a little bit to the side, because um, on uh, January 15th, we had a federal judge um, essentially enjoin the effect of that executive order saying that it was um, illegal or improper. Do I have that right? Yeah, so on January 15th, that's right, a, a federal judge in Maryland uh, temporarily blocked the executive order. Um, so that basically means we're back to the status quo um, for refugee resettlement. So right. the State Department is working with nonprofits to resettle people as they did before the injunction um, until there's a resolution otherwise on that. And um, 
that could happen if the Trump administration decides to appeal, which um, as far as I know, they haven't yet. Um, so counties have sort of decided, well, like I was saying, a lot of counties were sort of trying to vote before that, that January 21st deadline. Um, many of them who had scheduled votes on January 21st decided um kind of not to vote after all because of the injunction. Right. Um, I think some of them don't want to go through the, the process of um, having the debates in the community if it's not something that's actually going to end up affecting their community. Other ones are saying right. we don't want to expend the resources, and so they're they're putting off the votes. I've been in touch with a lot of counties. In Stearns County, which um, resettles the second largest number of refugees per capita in Minnesota after Ramsey County, um, they actually had the refugee resettlement agency that was applying to uh, resettle refugees rescind their request because of the injunction. Uh, so they're not asking for, for, for permission because they don't need it as it ends right now right, with the and injunction they, in place. And they don't want to put elected officials on the spot. Um, Greta, we're going to have to take a break, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about Beltrami, but I also want to talk about the value of data since you're the data reporter, okay? Sure. All right, we'll be back in a second. Uh, listeners, we've been talking to a Greta Call from MinPost about um, refugees and Beltrami County and some other things. When we come back, we'll talk more. If you like what you hear on the show, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail. We'll be back in a sec. Thanks. At Better Futures Minnesota, we believe everyone deserves a fair shot. We believe in personal redemption and second chances, and that those who are dedicated to change and hard work should have the opportunity to achieve success and make a positive impact in the community. The men we embrace and serve have made mistakes, but they aren't bad people. We work with men who take responsibility for their past and are committed to doing better, who work to create a better life for themselves, their family, and the community. Learn more at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming, diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. We're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. Um, before we broke, uh, we were speaking with, and we will continue to speak with, Greta Call from MinPost. She is the data reporter for MinPost. And I don't know, listeners, if you're familiar with MinPost, but it's an online um, newspaper, magazine that is incredibly important. It certainly um, educates me a great deal about what's going on in Minnesota as well as in the country. Um, Greta, before we broke, we were talking about the refugees, um, you know, the, the situation up in Beltrami County. And, and am I, I'm correct on this. I mean, when we talk about refugees, we're not talking about, and for lack of a better phrase, plain old immigrants. Um, you know, we are talking about people who are coming to our country from areas with, that have experienced war or some kind of um, natural disaster, folks who might 
otherwise ordinarily not want to go live in another country. But at that, but at, you know, in their lives, they have no choice. They need to get out of where they're at. Do I have that right? Yeah. So I think after I started writing about this, uh, I realized a lot of people uh, don't quite understand what refugee means. Um, it's one of many uh, words that's often used for immigrants, but it actually has a very specific meaning. Um, and, and one of the things that's most confusing about refugees is the term kind of has two meanings. On a global scale, um, there's sort of a UN definition that refers to a person who's fled their home country due to some kind of persecution or war like you talked about. Um, but as far as the United States government is concerned, it's also a legal definition. It's a status that people can get, um, not unlike uh, asylee or green card holder. So it's sort of its own category of immigration status um, that's separate from some of these other statuses because um, it refers to somebody who uh, is living in a country that, for whatever reason, uh, persecution or war is dangerous for them. And so they apply through this program to come to the United States. That's different from an asylee, although they often face similar circumstances in their home country because an asylee typically... Um, shows up in the United States. We've heard a lot recently about um, people from uh, Central America coming to the United States um, over the U.S.-Mexico border. So they come into the country and then they apply for status. So the difference is sort of where it happens. For refugees, they're applying in their home country. For asylees, they're applying once they get to the United States. Right. And if you're asking for, if you're seeking asylum, I think under federal law, you get the right to have a hearing automatically. So Yeah, and that process yeah. happens through immigration court versus this refugee uh, process that happens through the U.S. Department of State, basically. Okay. And, and partly what's also going on with refugees is that the United States, I mean, it sets a limit or a quota of the number of refugees it would take each year. And it has under the Trump administration progressively reduced that number that they're willing to accept in the U.S. Yeah, um, this year it's capped at 18,000. I think yeah. the uh, t- fiscal year 2019, it was uh, 30,000. So it's right about half, a little more than half of what it had been. And it was higher than that in prior administrations. I mean, this I mean, part of this is just goes against what America, you know, stands for. And, and it just... Okay, well, you can hear the frustration. Well. <laughs> Let me, I want to talk with you now about the fact that you're the data reporter uh, for MinPost. <clears throat> and I find this interesting, and there's a reason I'm asking about this, okay? So, as you know from here on air a little bit, but off air as well, I'm an idealist. I am somebody, literally, <laughs> every, almost every minute I'm awake trying to work to change the world. And... Um, and I have found, and I'm a prior uh, executive director for a nonprofit. I helped found a legal access nonprofit and ran that for five years. And in the course of that, I learned about the importance of data and the importance of metrics. So tell me a little bit, what does the data reporter from InPost do? And then I want to ask you a couple of questions about how data is so in, in, incredibly relevant. Sure. So when I was in journalism school about 10 years ago, which gives you a sense of how old I am, um, I, data, data was really an emerging field in journalism. Um, it was something that uh, maybe there was one class on in, in journalism schools. Um, and the goal was to, to get journalists to start using uh, some of the data that's now available from literally every 
every level of government, every agency is producing just massive amounts of data. Um, and what data reporting seeks to do is is to use that data to tell stories. So okay. a lot of what I do is uh, either get, a, get an idea for a story through something that's happening in the news, like an example would be um, this refugee executive order, um, or else sometimes I download a data set and look for stories in it and just sort of ask it questions as you would a source, um, right. you know, how have things changed over time? You can sometimes see in data, um, what's the biggest and the smallest numbers and are they interesting for some reason, that type of thing. But an example of a recent story would be in the midst of this, uh, the news about this refugee, um, these re refugee resettlement votes, uh, we had heard that Beltrami County had voted, was the first county in Minnesota to vote no on resettlement um, and had seen that, that Beltrami County hadn't had any refugees resettle in, in at least five years, 10 years. Um, and so I decided to, to go look for data that would show us uh, how many how many refugees different counties in Minnesota had resettled because I think that's informative and it helps us understand sort of the parameters of this debate right. a little better. Well, and in, in the case of the refugees, it just shows that, I mean, from an idealistic standpoint, it just shows that we have a lot of people that are afraid, um, certainly up in Beltrami County. And, you know, in, I mean, I have, for this is neither here nor there, but as soon as the Beltrami story broke, I actually uh, started reaching out to contacts in Beltrami County asking if I could go up there and train and speak on human inclusivity. Unfortunately, out of four contacts, not a single one has returned my inquiry. And that is very disappointing to me. Um, but uh, the reason I wanted to ask about data is that, you know, there are trends going on in the, in the state right now as it relates to human inclusivity and as it relates to changing the way our state is changing in terms of color and in terms of other demographics. So are you, are you tracking, you know, the, the information about uh, people of color other than white color, uh, you know, living and moving to counties that are outside the seven county metro. Have you been watching that data at all? I so I kind of watch a little bit of everything as part of my job. I don't have okay. a specific beat, so I cover a little bit of everything. But I, I do cover. Yeah, well, a lot of what I cover, especially because Minnesota has pretty big racial and ethnic disparities, has to do with those disparities. And, and also, yeah. um, just because we cover Minnesota, how Minnesota is changing is a big part of that, too. So what are you, I mean, what are you seeing on your end? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing anecdotally, although I don't have, I haven't looked at numbers, you know, like Fairbo, uh, that, you know, in the elementary school, in certainly K- K through, you know, one to three to fourth grades that predominantly the color of skin of the students is not white in those school in uh, the Faribault schools. Yeah, and, we hear about that in a lot of communities. I think Worthington's another example yeah. um, and uh, some com other communities in greater Minnesota as well. So, so from a, you know, just from an analytical st uh, uh, data standpoint, what what are you, what kind of conclusions are you drawing from that? I know I'm hitting you cold about this because I didn't ask you that off air. But, but <laughs> no, hey, it's all good. Go ahead. What what kind yeah, of? Yeah. So I think what it tells us. I mean, the the kids of today are are the adults of tomorrow, right? And so the in Minnesota, the future is going to look a lot more diverse than it does now. Um, you know, I used to live in California and Texas, which are most much more diverse states than Minnesota. But I think um, Minnesota's future 
looks a lot more diverse than it does now. Well, and a, yep. a lot of that has to do, if you look at international migration numbers, with folks coming from other countries. Minnesota has had a lot of people come um, through the refugee program, and that's sort of created these uh, these pockets where we have much more diverse right. uh, communities. And from an idealistic standpoint, I find that this is wonderful, okay? And I think it's proof that people don't need to be afraid, that communities can be welcoming. Well, I know that there are challenges in each of these communities, okay? But the fact that people feel at least safe enough to go live there, people who are different or other, I think it's positive. I mean, the last stat I saw, and maybe you'll be able to correct me, is that the state as a whole um, is about 20% people of color other than the white color. Do you have a different stat than that? I think that's about right. And yeah. if you look at the Twin Cities, it's uh, significantly more. And if you look at some of those cities, like talked about, Faribault, Worthington, um, Austin, Minnesota, places like that, you have a, a higher share of people of color. Yeah, and and I think that I I don't think that a lot of Minnesotans understand this. I mean, many times. So when I train, I throw out questions to the audience, and one of the questions I I throw out. Um, when I'm not in like Minneapolis or St. Paul is what percentage of people of color other than the white color live in Minnesota. And you know what? Most people have no idea. I've had questions, I've had answers ranging from 4% to 50%, you know, and I'm like 50%, where, where do you live? <laughs> you know? Um, and, and, and of course, knowing data is so important because it helps us to inform about the pulse. It also helps us to plan for the future, Right. Yeah, that's one thing that I like about uh, data a lot is I find that it helps me provide context to the news. And then, because we have a smaller staff, we don't go cover every breaking event that happens because we just don't have the bodies to do that. We try to do a little bit more of an analytical take on the news, help people understand the context or why something is part of the debate and things like that. And I find that data really helps with that because it, it can just help people have a much bigger understanding of um, an issue, whatever it is. So, um, so Greta, one last question for you, okay? Um, sure. And I ask everyone that I interview on the show this, and that is, are you an idealist? You know, I don't know that I've ever considered myself an idealist. I've always sort of considered myself a realist, and maybe that's uh, maybe that comes from being a reporter, or maybe it's what attracted me to being a reporter. I'm not sure. I try to look at the situation as it is and sort of act accordingly. But um, I, yeah, I don't necessarily know that I would consider myself an idealist. Well, I'm going to throw a bug in your ear, okay? <laughs> All right. Because, you know, you've already revealed that you're on the younger end of the spectrum. And I'm going to just uh, throw this at you, okay? And I know you're a journalist and you need to be objective and all of that stuff. But everybody has a day job and then you have time to go home. And, um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to urge you to think about the idea, the possibility that you and maybe some of your cohorts could be idealists. You Maybe. could start looking at the world in a way not necessarily as it is, but as it possibly could be with hard work and visioning and a lot more hard work um, because the world's got to be better. We got to get it to a better place than where it is right now. So I'm just throwing that at you, okay? All right. <laughs> 
All right. Well, listen, Greta, I appreciate you uh, being on LA 2.0 Radio. I've enjoyed talking to you. Keep up the good work at MinPost. Let the folks at MinPost know they've got a friend over here at this, uh, at, at, uh, in this show. And uh, just thanks a lot for being on LA 2.0. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, take care. All right. Thank you. We've been speaking with Greta Call from MinPost about data in Beltrami County. When we come back from the show, uh, come back to the show, uh, we'll do my C block and where I'll talk about my work. Thanks so very much. We'll be back in a sec. At Better Futures Minnesota, we transform the lives of men and support Minnesota's environment by working towards zero waste. Our approach reaffirms each man's dignity and supports self-sufficiency. Better Futures Minnesota is a work training model. Through our reuse, retail warehouse, and supervised work crews with specialized in residential and commercial building deconstruction, property maintenance, appliance recycling, and janitorial services, we demonstrate ways to employ hire-to-employ men on a pathway to independence. Hire our work crews at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com. Branding electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. And we're back. LE 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Hello, everyone. Greta Call. Yes. Um, maybe, maybe I could make her think a little bit at least about becoming an idealist. You know, and I, I am positive there are many of you out there as soon as she said, well, I'm really more of a realist. You know, and for me, I certainly respect realists and I certainly respect folks who are ground and what's going on and all of that stuff. But you know what? We got to dream and we got to have visions for how the world can be better. We do. And then we have to work towards that. We do. Because if we're just realistic, oh, this is the way it is. And I'm not trying to be um, critical we're demeaning to Greta or other realists. But if we just sit and say, oh, this is the way it is, how in the world are we going to get beyond it? Okay, I'm in my C block here uh, where I talk about my work as a practical idealist. And I am an idealist. I am. So, um, so here's the way I operate. Uh, much of what I do is I focus as much as I can. Then I plan, and then I try to execute. Now, you have to understand, it's an army of one. <laughs> it's just Ellie Krug. Although, I will tell you, I have a number of people who absolutely believe in my work and are so willing to help me on per-item basis when I need help. But that's the way I operate. I, I, I get in my head, we've got to do something. For example, like you just heard in the um, prior segment where I, like, I need to go to Beltrami County. And I'm now... I've had four people who've just not responded to my inquiries, but that doesn't mean I won't keep trying. I'm very persistent. 
So for this year, what have I focused on? What have I planned on? And, and um, I'm not only focusing on my regular work of training and speaking to companies and governmental entities and all kinds of other places about human inclusivity, but I've also, for 2020, decided I'm going to talk at more churches. And so far this year, I've spoken at three different churches. I think that's about the whole number that I spoke, of, spoke at in 2019, so I'm like ready to keep going. Some of these churches have been in the outer suburb rings um, of the Twin Cities. And uh, that's important to me uh, because the churches that are in the inner rings, and I'm fine to come to churches that are in the immediate metro, that's absolutely fine with me. But the churches that are in the outer rings are not used to having people who are different or other address them. Okay? They may... they. They may not have many different or other congregants or parishioners. So I'm going to put this out there right now to every one of you listeners, okay? Here we go. I would like to come to your church, particularly if it's farther away from downtown Minneapolis or St. Paul, but even if it's closer, don't worry. I want to come to your church and I want to present. Now, I'm not going to do that for free because... I find that when I do work that doesn't cost, it does not get valued. But I will do it for what I call low bono, okay? And low bono means I reduce my fee like by 90%. But I do think there's value in having people pay something because they pay more attention, um, the uh, attendance is much greater, and uh, people are far better organized than when, oh, it's, just, it's free, well, whether she shows up, whatever. Okay, so anyway, I'm putting that out there to everyone. I would like to come to your church. If you want to, reach me. If you want to, uh, take me up on this offer or find out more about it, you can email me at lejkrug at gmail.com or go to my website at lejkrug.com if you can't remember the the email address. you got to throw the J in on the email, but just go to illykrug.com. You can get my email address all over the place or reach out to AM950. They'll let you know, okay? They'll get you my email. So, uh, you know, this is prompted by a couple of things. Once, uh, one is that many churches want to be welcoming uh, to all people, but their exposure to humans who are other is very limited. I already just said that. Also, my message is universal. My message is about having compassion for others and for oneself. As someone emailed me who had heard me speak at a church recently, she said, Ellie, you need to go speak to more church people, <laughs> which I, th I thought that was really kind, but that was a phrase she used, church people. Um, finally, why do I put this out there? Why do I throw this out there to you? I throw it out because people are hurting. And somehow, when I show up... Um, it gives them comfort. So I was up at a, I was most recently at a church in a very outer ring, spoke on a Thursday night, and uh, I got done with this, uh, the talk. I, I, people, uh, the, uh, there was time left over in the talk. People started asking me questions. I was, they were very smart, intelligent questions, and some of it was about what it meant to be transgender. I got done with the talk. I went out front, I was uh, sitting, signing books and selling books, and there was a young human, a teen, non-binary, so I couldn't, I couldn't figure out whether this person was identified as male or female, and I don't think they, I think they just wanted to identify as human, which I just love, that's what non-binary is, but they didn't get in line to speak to me, but they stood off to the side, and I could see 
that there were tears in this young human's eyes. And so, um, so I, I, you know, I essentially interrupted selling books. And I got up because I did not want to have a conversation in front of the people who were standing in line. I just asked them, the people in line to buy my book. I said, please wait. And I went over to the side. We went and walked a little bit of a distance. And I went over to the side with this teen, this young human. And all they did was start sobbing. And put their head on my shoulder. I, I wrapped my arms around this young human. And all they did was cry. And I... I, I and they, we're trying to say some things in between the tears, but I couldn't, I'm old and my hearing's not all that great. And all I just kept saying is, I care about you. I care about you. I care about you. And I could see that the teen's parents were off in some distance. And you know what? They just waited. They were it was obvious that they accepted their, their child as who that child really was. And they waited. And they let me comfort their child. This is my work. This is what I do. This is what needs to be done in the world. So, there you have it. Invite me in. I'll come as Ellie. All right, well, that takes care of that show. <laughs> um, you've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, uh, on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Please tell others about this show. I need to give a big thanks to Brendan the Electrolysis, one of my sponsors. Tell Bev, I sent you. She does great work. And my other sponsor, Better Futures Minnesota. I could use more sponsors. Better Futures, by the way, does Great work because it gives people second chances. A big thanks to Brett Johnson, my regular, wonderful, incredible producer. And to you listeners, a big thanks to you. I do hear from you. I hear that you appreciate this show. I am trying my best to change the world, and I know many of you want that to happen as well. And so, visit my website at elliekrug.com, email me at elliejkrug at gmail, reach out to me at Instagram at elliejkrug, and do good. I'll see you. Talk to you next week. Bye.